Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Massachusetts is one of the most prosperous states in the nation, and yet one in ten Massachusetts residents is hungry or doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. As Project Bread celebrates 50 years of its walk for hunger, we examine the state of hunger and food insecurity in New England. Later in the show, he grew up listening to Duke Ellington's swing, fell in love with John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, and found a career championing the music that is originally American. I think that if a lot more people heard jazz, they would find that there's some part of that broad spectrum of music that they like and they would relate to. We're raising a glass to jazz radio host Eric Jackson, who this year marks 40 years behind the mic at WGBH Radio. But first, joining me in the studio, Erin McAleer, president of Project Bread in Massachusetts. Hello, Erin. Thank you for having me. Hello. I'm glad to have you. Hello to you. Julie LaFontaine, executive director of The Open Door in Gloucester. Welcome, Julie. Kelly, it's good to be here. I'm glad to have you. And Andrew Schiff, chief executive officer of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. Hello, Andrew. Hi, happy to be here. Welcome back, actually, to you, because long ago you were on these airways, so happy to have you. I thought the best way to begin this conversation is to have each of you talk about how your organizations work, just briefly, so people understand the connection with food insecurity and hunger and and your contribution to easing that problem. I'll start with you, Erin. Thank you. So I am from Project Bread. Project Bread is a statewide anti-hunger organization here in Massachusetts. We're celebrating our 50th this year, so we have a long legacy of working on and leading on this issue. Our approach to prevent and end hunger in Massachusetts is around four core strategies. The first is access and really ensuring that individuals that are hungry or food insecure have access to affordable and healthy foods. We do that through a number of different ways, one being grant making through the Walk for Hunger, and other ways is, you know, working in community health centers where we're screening individuals for food insecurity. We're in schools throughout the state, helping schools to implement school breakfast. We are providing school um, summer meals with partners throughout. And then we also believe it's really important that we, in addition to access, we raise awareness about the issue of hunger. And we do that in a number of different ways as well. Okay. Andrew. I run the food bank in Rhode Island. We have almost 160 member agencies of the food pantries and meal programs that we deliver food to. That's our biggest responsibility. But everyone who's coming for help has many other needs, and we try to make sure that we're connecting people with other resources as well. And Julie? 
I am the executive director of The Open Door, and we're headquartered in Gloucester, serving 10 cities and towns in the northeast corner of Essex County. Our mission is pretty simple. It's to alleviate the impact of hunger in the community. And we do that through traditional programs like food pantries. We actually have two food pantries where folks can come in and get food. But we also uh, have gone out into the community with a mobile market strategy. We've gone into public housing neighborhoods, low-income schools, senior centers, and also have a mobile market at North Shore Community College Danvers campus. So our programs really are designed to provide household stability when people are struggling to make ends meet and really take a good hard look at where nutrition meets a good and healthy community. All right. So that, I think, gives everybody a sense of the broad spectrum of where you all are working. So honestly, Erin, we decided to do this story and and just take a moment to look at this subject again. I've looked at it many times over the years because of Project Bread's 50th anniversary. And you know, when you reach 50 years, you start to reflect where have we come from and where are we? So I thought I'd get you to say from a Project Bread perspective, if you look back 50 years, where was food insecurity and hunger in Massachusetts and where is it now? Yeah, well, thanks for igniting this conversation because it's critically important. And as you said at the beginning, we have one in 10 in Massachusetts who still don't know where the next meal was coming from. You know, 50 years ago, there was hunger and food insecurity in our country. And that's why people took to the streets and decided to raise awareness for it. And predominantly what the Walk for Hunger funded back then were soup kitchens and food pantries. What we're seeing today is that the food insecurity rate still exists. Um, A change is just the amount of wealth that we have in the state. So I think it's just a little bit more surprising that we have food insecurity in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And the reasons why people are hungry are very different than they were 50 years ago. Today, we know that the number one factor for hunger in Massachusetts is cost of living. It's the cost of housing. It's the cost of childcare, the cost of transportation. And then we also know that the individuals that are hungry are certainly low income, those, you know, earning less than the federal poverty level, but also middle income, that an individual making $50,000 a year can't afford to buy groceries when they factor in all the cost of living here in Massachusetts. So the face of food insecurity today is not necessarily what would you think it would be. So that's my guest, Erin McAleer. She's the president of Project Bread in Massachusetts. Over to you, Andrew, because uh, you're at the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. And Erin just raised some issues about what we're looking at when we talk about who your clients are now. And I just can't emphasize enough, but I want you to because you're the expert. People are working when they come to use your resources. They are working every day. Absolutely. And that's, <laughs> you know, one of the things that surprised people is that there is still such high levels of food insecurity, and we're 10 years out from the Great Recession. We've seen unemployment come down. More people have jobs. What's the problem? The problem is those jobs don't pay a wage that allows people to afford the basic necessities of life, including food. And when you say that the gap is not being closed, when you and Aaron say that, give me an example of, you know, somebody who's coming, who's working every day, and who, if you looked at the bottom line salary, you'd say, okay, not great, but okay. But still, they have to come and see you. Minimum wage in Rhode Mm -hmm. Island is 1010, so people are earning about $20,000 a year. If you have a family, you could just imagine what rents are like in Providence and Rhode Island. You're paying most of your income out in rent, utilities, and you have very, very left for everything else. By the end of the month, people are running out of money for food, even if they have SNAP, food stamps. And SNAP is 
you know, the primary way that we combat the problem of hunger That's across a federal the program, countries, so people right, know. Mm-hmm. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance mm-hmm. Program, used to be called the Food Stamp Program, is still the primary way that we're going to address the problem. But even with SNAP benefits that on average are just $125 a month per person, that's just not enough to get somebody the resources that they need so that they don't have to depend on emergency food assistance and a food pantry. So, Julie, pick up on that with regard to the SNAP benefits, because their conversation is now about cutting back the SNAP benefits. So tell us where you are now, just with what Andrew said, people struggling to use what they are getting now to make ends meet. So I'm reminded uh, a few years back, I I walked into our waiting room and there was a gentleman sitting there, we'll call him Leonard. And I said, hey, Leonard, how are you doing? And he said, you know, sometimes there's just too much month left at the end of the money. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that is true with the SNAP benefit. It's a federal program that is designed to be a safety net for people who are struggling to make ends meet, to make sure that they can put food on the table. But more and more food banks and food pantries are really working hand in hand with that safety net to fill in the gaps. And so someone may be receiving a SNAP benefit but still need to use a food pantry in their city or town. So I'm going to let each of you answer this. What about the people that say, well, you all are helping those folks who need it. Why can't we cut back the waste in government around these programs? And we know people are wasting. People are wasting these funds. Why can't we cut that back, Aaron? and you guys fill in the blank? So first of all, I would say that we know that SNAP has the lowest fraud of almost any federal program in the country. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one thing, you know, we talk about food stamps because that's what it was for a number of years, but it actually switched to an electronic card. I won't get too technical here, but we all know from having credit cards that you can track things very easily on an electronic card. We know where people are purchasing foods. We know what foods they're purchasing. We are restricting what purchases they can make. So there is a lot of false rhetoric out there about the SNAP program. It has become heavily politicized in political campaigns, and it's become a punching bag um, when, in fact, it has kept millions of Americans, including those in Massachusetts, out of poverty because it provides that safety net that Julie was alluding to, and that, frankly, the fraud, it doesn't exist at the levels that are fabricated. Andrew. There's so much evidence that SNAP benefits are helping to improve families' overall uh, well-being and particularly health. So, you know, that's where the research findings are. There's very little that shows that there's fraud or abuse. Julie? Uh, So I would just echo what my colleague said here. I think that SNAP is a program that I think people spend an average of nine months using, and it is set up in a way to make sure that SNAP dollars are spent at the grocery store and put food on the table, and the actual fraud is pretty low. And, you know, when people come to me and say, well, don't you think people are abusing that? I say, no, I like to eat three meals a day, and I assume you do too. And the SNAP benefit is one way that that happens. Uh, That's my guest, Julie LaFontaine. She's the executive director of The Open Door in Gloucester. Andrew, they're talking about replacing SNAP or changing it to a harvest box. And in Rhode Island, where you're the uh, CEO of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank, what does that mean, actually, harvest box? And what would that mean? Should that come to So this was a White House proposal that has gone nowhere. Really, the proposals by Congress are now part of the Farm Bill, and they completely left out this harvest box idea. It's a wacky idea that I think really was put out to distract because there's no way that you could ever 
reach 44 million people. That's how many people receive SNAP benefits now through some sort of box that way. I know that I, I'm providing food to people. I know that that's impossible. There's just no way that the program, that idea made sense. We have a system already in place to provide people with food that's very efficient. It's called the supermarket. Mm. Now, here's the other thing that's underlying some of this, the harvest box idea, the the persistent myth that people are abusing it. There's a deep amount of resentment, which I don't actually understand, because all of you are on the forefront of this. I wonder if you can help explain that. There's a lot of resentment about people who need to use your services, Julie. Well, I think sometimes it's because people don't understand. I don't think that they really understand what it means when someone needs to come and use a food pantry, what it means to come wait in line. And even though we do our very best to make it a pleasant experience, you're still at a food pantry. You're still food insecure. And so I think sometimes because people don't know they're resentful, I also wonder sometimes when you read reports about Americans going paycheck to paycheck, if there might not be a little bit of fear in there that for themselves that what if this happened to me and and if I can just make enough difference between me and those people using the food pantry, maybe it won't happen to me. But wouldn't that make you more empathetic? I think that it certainly makes some people more empathetic, but we do uh, run into folks who are very concerned about anyone who might be getting something they shouldn't get. Aaron. Yeah, I spent a, um, before I was at Project Bread, I spent a number of years in state government. And in one of those roles, I was chief of staff at the Department of Transitional Assistance. And part of my job was answering the most angry constituent calls. And I will tell you, those that were most angry were the, those that were determined not to be eligible for SNAP because they were within cents or dollars of being eligible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is, you know, I when I started this conversation, I mentioned $50,000. I would even go up to $75,000 as a really strong salary. But folks are having a hard time getting by in Massachusetts. Rent here is is extremely high. You know, if you're making the uh, minimum wage in Massachusetts, you have to work 80 hours a week to find an apartment anywhere. We're not just talking about in the city of Boston. And so I think a lot of it is that more folks are actually in need. And those folks that are in need are, are resentful that they're not eligible for a number of these programs that would otherwise support them. Andrew? You know, I think one of the things that really helps people get over that resentment is actually to get to programs like Julie's Mm -hmm. and see the people who are coming for help. They're no different from us. The us-them thing breaks down as soon as you see who's in line, particularly with political leaders. We really, really try hard to get them out to our programs so they get the idea of what the reality is on the ground. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Aaron McAleer, president of Project Bread, Julie LaFontaine, executive director of The Open Door, and Andrew Schiff, you just heard him, chief executive officer of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. We're discussing Project Bread's 50 years of the walk for hunger and the state of food insecurity in New England. I want to make clear to people, because food insecurity to me is always a wonky term, but it means you don't know where your next meal is coming from. When you get up every day, it's work to figure out where will I eat? Will I eat actually? Right. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wondering how you're going to put food on the table for your children. Um, it's wondering for low-income kids, over half their calories come from school meals. It's wondering how are you going to feed them in the summer? How are you going to feed them on a snow day? How are you going to feed them on the weekend? So it's that stress, and the way it manifests itself is honestly in parental stress, child stress, and my two colleagues can speak to this um, very well as well, is that the calories and what they cost, and it mm-hmm. often manifests itself. We find that obesity is a sign of hunger because we know that processed foods 
foods are much more affordable and you can stretch your dollars that way. And I reference the two of them because they've done tremendous work in making sure to provide healthy food to make them affordable to folks. But yeah, it's not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Yeah, I want to pick up on that because in the minds of people, they're thinking about the old way that, you know, sort of food was donated or monies were donated to food banks or to programs like Julie's. And they don't understand that a lot has changed. Julie, you hinted at that at the beginning of in describing what your group does. But you're really, you and Andrew are really taking a look at what kind of food and trying to talk to the people that come in to make uh, use of your services about that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that that is absolutely true. You know, I think we sometimes say we're we're not your father's food pantry. We've really kind of broken down some of the stereotypes of going in and receiving a bag that would have some beans or maybe some peanut butter in it. If you came to visit our food pantry in Gloucester, you would think it looked like a small bodega. There's a great big uh, produce cooler that's filled with brightly colored produce. There's milk and eggs that you take from a reach-in cooler as well as prepared foods, items that you take from a freezer with glass doors well lit so you're having a chance to make your choices and everything that you put into your cart is a choice that you've made as opposed to having someone stand there and say would you like this or would you like this or just handing you a bag and those have been some really intentional steps that we've taken in breaking down the way that we're serving people recognizing that poverty is actually a trauma Mm -hmm. and people who are coming in are experiencing trauma and sometimes it manifests itself in appearing to be you know just a really foul-tempered person, but it really is because you've come into a place that um, where you don't have a lot of choices and it brings out the worst in you. So the way we've redesigned is to try to address some of those things. The other piece that we've had a big focus on is making sure there are enough uh, fresh fruits and vegetables available. That's a huge move. It's huge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we eat with our eyes uh, before we ever put anything in our mouths. And so um, we make sure that we have a, a fresh array of produce available and our goal for eating each order that we give out, and we do use a weight system so we can track this, is to make sure that 35% of every order that we give out on average has uh, 35% produce in it. And so I'm happy to say that we're hitting that, I think, just over 38% so far for this year. That means that when people are coming in, they're having access to those shelf-stable items, but also the produce that is so essential to a healthy diet. Um, That's my guest, Julie LaFontaine of The Open Door. Andrew, you were pioneers in in doing this work. Uh, Years and years ago, your food bank in Rhode Island stopped taking soda, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. when I think food banks in the beginning were all about just bringing as much food as possible. There was all this surplus food in the food industry. Just bring it in and get it out to people. What folks began to realize is we were supposed to be addressing the problem of food insecurity, When people become food secure, they have, the definition is they have consistent and dependable access to enough food for active, healthy living. So right in the definition, healthy is there. And so it was on us to make sure that the food that we're providing was nutritious. We've done a lot to try to educate the public about the type of food that we need donated. And what we say at this point is make sure you're giving us food that a parent can turn into a meal. If you look at that guideline, most of the time folks are going to be able to contribute healthy food and will make sure that we add the fresh produce, which is always healthy. And you've got a nutritionist working with you. We do. Mary Flynn on our board has helped us for 10 years to make sure that we're not only providing food, but also nutrition education across the state. All of these innovations, Aaron, are 
really important in having people connect with the food and making sure that, well, we try to close that gap with hunger in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. How have you seen innovation really play a part as we go forward? Yeah, we've seen innovative solutions throughout our history, um, and a number of them really around access. And how people access food is changing minute by minute, day to day. I'm a mother of a one-year-old and a two-year-old, and I can't tell you the last time I myself got to a supermarket just because of the challenges of how people access food today. And so what we have found with the most innovative programs, like the two that are sitting here today, is really thinking through strategically, how do you get food to people where they are and also ensure it's a dignifying experience. We're seeing a lot of more mobile opportunities, whether it's a mobile food pantry, a mobile summer meals program, mobile farmer's market, where they are going to where people are, um, which is critically important. We're seeing more technological advancements about informing people. You know, for our summer meals program, we do a text campaign so that families know that there will be a summer meal program in your community and go to the YMCA or the library. So we really need to think smartly about how to ensure that individuals are getting access to healthy food where they are. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Here with me are Aaron McAleer, president of Project Red, Julie LaFontaine, executive director of The Open Door, and Andrew Schiff, chief executive officer of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. We're taking the opportunity to mark Project Red's 50-year of Walk for Hunger to talk about really the state of food insecurity and hunger in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Talk to me about stigma. We've talked about it a little bit around the edges here. But aside from the people who are angry that they may have to access these services, there's a whole other thing about the people who are reconciled to using the services but are struggling around that stigma. First, what does that look like, Andrew, and what can we on the outside do to alleviate that? We see it so much, particularly with senior adults. You know, they don't want to have to take help, and they all have this idea that if they take help, it's taking away from someone else. Mm. I think just being so clear that you have to get the help that you need, particularly when it's healthy, nutritious food that you need to stay independent and to be able to live the life that you want to live, we will make sure that you get that food. Please don't let this stop you from getting help. Mm. Julie? I would echo what Andrew said. I think there is this prevailing sense that if I take it, then I'll be taking it from someone else. And so on the community level up in Gloucester, we have really created some targeted nutrition programs, especially for seniors, to make it okay. And we've been able to break down some of those walls of stigma around getting help from a program. One of the things that we've done is we've worked with our local senior center, and we have a soup and salad bar. And it's for anyone who's a senior who can come in. We sponsor it, you know, along with the Rose Baker Senior Center. Folks are able to come in and it's not about need. It's about we're we're sharing a meal together. Mm. And so it's kind of repackaging and doing some really targeted marketing to populations that you know are vulnerable. Certainly our elders are vulnerable. And then for many, many years, actually, I think this is our 17th year, we've done the summer lunch program. And it came, I first started as the 
executive director and Project Bread reached out to us and said, hey, would you like to do summer meals? So uh, we are a summer meals sponsor and again, really targeted strategies to get into neighborhoods and places where kids are hanging out during the summer to make sure that they're having access to a meal that's kid friendly and fun. So I think those kinds of things, making it okay, going to a neighborhood, making it part of your neighborhood process takes away some of the stigma. And if people haven't connected those dots, the reason the summer meals program is important is that a lot of kids get food at school. And then if school is over, they're cut off from access. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that needs to be clear to people. What's the messaging? Because Julie is talking about, you know, how to reshape the messaging to people in the lines who need the services. But Aaron, this is 50 years of people coming to give their time and donations to walk for hunger. What's the messaging for the rest of us who are not at this moment, you know, but for the grace of God in the line? Yeah, I think, you know, the message is that, you know, as Andrew said before, it could be any of us and it most likely is. So you might, you know, you might participate in the Walk for Hunger or not participate because you don't think you know anyone who's food insecure. And I would challenge that you likely do, a neighbor, a colleague, a relative, and that food insecurity is much more prevalent than individuals might realize. And for a variety of different reasons, you know, we've talked about low wages and cost of living today, but we know that for most Americans, a $500 unexpected financial financial crisis would mean that they might not be able to put food on the table. So that's a medical bill. That's a leaky roof. That's a car repair. And so it's more prevalent than folks might realize. And and it's really on all of us to raise awareness about its existence. For those of us who have faced food insecurity in our own lives, to share our stories so that individuals understand and and can empathize with the reasons why um, we've faced food insecurity and, and really just to have solidarity around this issue, which is why the Walk for Hunger is such a great and powerful event. Okay. Andrew. I think instead of getting mad at the people who are food insecure and need help, let's get mad at the problem of Mm -hmm. hunger. And I think people can advocate, they can volunteer, they can donate. There are lots of ways to take action to help. And if people put that positive way of looking at the contribution that they could make and stop pointing at the people who are supposedly the problem, I think we could really advance things in the country. Would you explain also that, you know, you have to purchase some of the food? You know, you get food in, but in order to keep going and to meet the need, you've got to purchase food. So here's where the donations come in. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, food banks were founded on this model that there was all this surplus food in the food industry, and all we had to do was capture it and make sure we were distributing it to people in need. But the food industry has become much more efficient. There's less food available for donations, not because they're not generous. They're generous. They don't have the food to donate. They're in the business of selling food. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen is a major decrease in donations from the food industry. And now a third of the food at our food bank is actually purchased with donor dollars. Mm. And Julie? Again, I would echo what Andrew said. When you're really looking at making sure that people are getting quality food, nutritional food, the community collections are great. We get food from Food Rescue, but there is that need to make a wholesale purchase to really round out the nutritional value of what people are able to get at a food pantry now. I should mention Doug Rao, who's been a guest here on this show and his daily table here in Boston. For my listeners who have not heard on those times when he's been here at the show, he's taking food that some people think are bruised or whatever, pulled that together, done a lot of what you all are doing in your 
with your innovative moves, prepared foods. It looks like a grocery store. It is a grocery store for members. Very, very low cost with produce. And it's in two places now in Boston, one in um, Dudley Square and the other one in Dorchester. And they're quite successful and, you know, very well received. People can shop and feel comfortable because, you know, as you all have pointed out, once you get in the store to be able to pick what you want and yet it have a whole healthy presentation of what's available is really, really important. At 50 years, Erin, you said you want those walkers to become activists. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, we're at such a critical moment right now. Um, we've made tremendous progress in the past 50 years um, in, in anti-hunger solutions, and they're at risk right now and really, really serious risk. Andrew alluded to the cuts in the Farm Bill, which supports SNAP. And, you know, where we really want to take Project Bread is those individuals that show up for us on the first Sunday in May. We also want them advocating for solutions throughout the year because I think the food banks and the food pantries are doing tremendous work, but they can't do it alone. And we really need to preserve these federal programs. And we really need to have our individuals who care about this issue also strongly advocating for longer term sustainable solutions. I know you're having one of the first walkers yes, in Mary the... Walling. Yeah. And, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's loyal and dedicated. Yeah. Um, yeah. And does she have a comment about what's happened in 50 years? Uh. Yeah, she is. She loves the walk. She wants to make sure there's oranges. She's shared that with me. Okay. Like, okay. There's this particular corner where she rounds and she wants to make sure the oranges are there. No, I mean, she has just been so dedicated to this. And she has, I mean, she's walked with babies in utero. She has canceled family vacations to be at the walk. She wow. is just extremely, extremely dedicated to it. And I think that what we have said is that we wish we weren't still walking, but we will keep walking until this solvable problem is solved. Which brings me to this question, and I wonder if there's a part of each of you as you do this work that just some days or maybe every day says, I cannot believe I am in this rich, rich nation and I am doing this work. Andrew, does that strike you? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and also that Congress can make decisions that can make our work so much harder and make it so much harder for the people that we serve Decisions that don't seem to be really well thought through at all, folks who don't know what it's really like to struggle to feed your family, making decisions for those families that are really going to harm them, that is one of the hardest things for me to deal with. Julie? You know, I think the thing that we all wish is that we could get put out of business. I, I know when we were founded that first year, the pantry served 49 households and organizers hoped to be out of business in just a few years. But we served over 3,000 households last year. And so that's not happening. So to answer your question, I, I think I do scratch my head sometimes and say, we can keep innovating and finding solutions. But what is going to be that thing that makes us really get to the end of hunger? And I think that's something uh, worth rallying around. So I ask this question of uh, a lot of people who come here who are doing work that many people listening now would say, I couldn't do that. Why do you do it? Yeah, I, my, um, you know, I, I faced food insecurity in my own childhood. I was middle class family, two older brothers, and uh, my mother had faced physical and emotional abuse for a number of years. And she decided at one point she wasn't going to anymore. And she only worked part time. And that quickly meant us eating pancakes for meals. And it quickly meant us wondering what we could do to help alleviate her stress. And I remember being five years old wondering, 
you know, should I get a job? How should we help my mom? And I don't think any kid in this country should actually be lying awake wondering what they should be doing to help their family put food on the table with all the resources that we have. I think the second thing is that it is solvable. You know, we can figure this out if we, you know, Americans, we've done tremendous things um, in our country. And, and this is something that we just need to get the political will to change. And I think going back to the Walk for Hunger, that's an example of how can we get more citizens engaged and, and really advocating because we can solve this, but it's going to require people to say, I want to solve it and let's do it. Yeah. That's Aaron McAleer of Project Bread. Andrew, why do you do it? You know, I... I go back to when my previous career as a clinical psychologist, actually the head of mental health at the Neponset Health Center in Dorchester. And on Friday at 6 o'clock, there'd be a knock on my door after I saw my last patient, and it'd be a doctor with a family, and they didn't have any food at home for the weekend. And it was the one emergency that nobody had taught me how to deal with in graduate school. And, you know, we had to sit down as a community and figure out what we were going to do, and we had a very innovative a head of the health center who said, we need to have a food pantry as part of our health center. And we started the food pantry there. And uh, when they opened up, the line was around the block. And the director of the health center said, are all these people our patients? And we're like, no, they're people from the community. We get the food from the Greater Boston Food Bank. We have to open it up to the entire community. He said, sign them up. Sign them up for health care. <laughs> Make sure they're seeing a doctor. And that was the moment where I said, this is the work that I have to be doing. We can do so much for people who are struggling. And really what it takes is a community effort. And to be part of that is really rewarding. Andrew Schiff of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank and Julie LaFontaine of The Open Door. Why do you do it? Well, I think that kind of like the growing and the harvesting and and the gathering of food is in my DNA. I grew up on a farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And as I came into adulthood, I found myself really drawn to that simple act of making sure that someone who was hungry had something to eat. And there was something about that transaction that really satisfied something inside of me. But as I got to know more about the issue, I realized that it's more complex than just taking care of hunger for today. It's a long-term thing. And I was really drawn to the challenge of helping find a solution. And I think that the challenge of finding a solution and seeing the people that we're able to help every day along the way is what draws me to it and keeps me here. Well, I thank all of you for joining me today. Thank Thank you. Aaron McAleer is the president of Project Bread in Massachusetts, celebrating, or not celebrating actually, but marking 50 years for the Walk for Hunger. Hunger. Julie Lafontaine is the executive director of The Open Door in Gloucester. And Andrew Schiff is the chief executive officer of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. Coming up, for 40 years, Eric Jackson has offered up the best of jazz, swing, and the big band era, bop, avant-garde, fusion, and today's modern jazz innovators. We sit down with the guy known as the Dean of Boston Jazz Radio to look back on his four decades of making jazz come alive for legions of fans. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. You're listening to Peace by Tommy Flanagan. But Eric Jackson's legions of fans are likely to recognize it as the theme song for his jazz show, Eric in the Evening. That show is just a part of Eric's long tenure as a jazz host here at WGBH Radio. During his 40 years as a host, he's introduced his audience to new artists and eased us into the night with popular selections. And through it all, he's remained an enthusiastic ambassador for the music he loves. And Eric Jackson joins me in the studio. Hello, Eric. How are you and doing, Kelly? Congratulations. Yes. Oh, thank you very much. It's a day I never thought I was going to see, to tell you the truth. 40 years ago, who thinks they're going to be doing something <laughs> 40 years later? So. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, let's start this way. How did you happen to choose Peace by Tommy Flanagan as your theme song? Well, you know, when I started uh, doing Eric in the Evening, I had been doing the overnight show here for about four years. And when I started doing Eric in the Evening, I, I just had this thought in my head that I wanted to find a song that I was calling in my mind that was universal, mm. that people, they didn't even have to be jazz fans, would hear and say, wow, that's really pretty. I don't think I could have made a better choice uh, at all. I mean, just the number of people who love that song. You know, at one point, Amazon said that that recording was the number one selling recording in Massachusetts. Wow. Right. So that obviously there was a love for that song. Do you remember the very first selection you played on your first program as a jazz host? Uh, on my, my very first program? No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> okay, close to it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I also used to work at WBUR. And right. I started there in 1970. Yeah. Right. I know the first song I played there, but that's the only first song I know. I played a song called Malcolm's Gone by Leon Thomas and Farrell Sanders. Okay. Yeah. Now, what was it like putting on the jazz show then? Because, I don't know, did people think of Boston as a jazz song? Of course, there's Wally's Place, and there's so many people who come from here who are jazz artists. But I don't know that before I moved here, I would have thought of Boston that way. I don't think that a lot of people think of Boston as a jazz town, but I certainly think it is. I think just the fact that it's had so many people who've come from Boston, and then because of schools like Berkeley and New England Conservatory, there's so many people that come through town. And I was reminded some years ago by trombonist Bill Lowe that they come here and they come into a jazz community. And so those people who go on to make big names for them actually developed a lot of their skills while they were right here in Boston. So I certainly think it's a jazz town. I think certainly musicians know to respect Boston. So, Eric, when you started, before you came to WGBH, Mm -hmm. you were doing a variety of music, mixed music, R&B, and also jazz. And when you moved to WGBH and began to focus on jazz, you were something of an expert then, but goodness gracious, over the last 40 years, your knowledge base is amazing. Let's hope that if anyone does anything for 40 years, they develop some sort of expertise. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that is a good point. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let me ask this then. If you can't remember the, quite the first show here, can you remember one of your favorite, your best shows, one that you go back to in your mind and reminisce about? Oh, you know, there have been a lot of nights when I walk out feeling like, wow, this was a great show. Of course, there are other nights, and I walk out and I say, it just wasn't happening tonight. It, it just wasn't happening. You know, there's... They're sort of like connections that I'm trying to make, and I want the show to feel like it has a flow. And there are some nights when I feel that. There are other nights when I walk out and think. But you know what's ironic about that is, of course, some of those nights when I walk out and feel like there was no flow, I go home and check my Facebook account, and somebody, a couple people write in and say, wow, really great show tonight. It's like, Okay, you know. <laughs> you know. Well, maybe those were the nights that uh, you were playing some of the favorite songs that folks seem to always want to come back to. I want to play one of those. Uh, this is a clip from John Coltrane's version of My Favorite Things, and it's originally from The Sound of Music. So why do you think this remains a favorite of your listeners? Well, it's, it's very relaxed. It's never very uh, intense. It's a tune that uh, a lot of people know, so there's some familiarity uh, with that. I think those are probably two of them, and it's just beautiful. You mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, it, it was unusual at the time because there weren't a lot of people playing soprano saxophone at that time, which also made it... Uh, stand out from the other music that was being played. And it also just turned out to be a monster hit for uh, John Coltrane. He, he was doing something, doing an interview or something like that, and uh, right after this was recorded, and the interviewer asked him after the interview was over, what are you going to do now? He said, man, i go, got to go home and do some work. i got to find another of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. life of an artist. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> but in fact, John Coltrane was particularly special for you. I read that listening to him, you said, opened you up. In fact, oh, yeah. you wrote a whole chapter in a book about John Coltrane right, and how right. much he influenced you. You called hearing him a revelation, a new way of hearing. What oh, did you sure, mean? Oh, sure, sure. Well, I grew up in a house listening to jazz. My father, as you probably know, was the first African-American radio announcer in New England, and he was a jazz fan, and that's what was in the house. He generally was in charge of the music, especially back in the old days when, you know, you had one radio in the house maybe or something like that. So he was in charge of the music, and that's what we listened to. He would come home from work, and if we were playing, I don't know, The Temptations or somebody, he would say, Oh, boy, take that noise off. I hear that hooting and hollering all day long. So I learned to go ahead and put on jazz when I knew he was going to be around. That was fine. And then, of course, we did end up having a radio in my bedroom. And if I wanted to hear something else, I could go upstairs and listen to something else. But I listened to jazz radio growing up, so I was very comfortable with the music. What but, was it about John Coltrane, though, that was particularly yeah. impressive to you? I think I, I heard John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Let's play a clip from that. Here, okay. let's, here's a clip from John Coltrane's okay. A Love Supreme.
So what about this particularly awakened you? Well, there, I think there were two things there. Uh, one, I grew up a very religious person. And uh, I think there was the appeal of uh, the religious side, or the spiritual side of this music. I like the idea of this a love supreme uh, concept that Coltrane was talking about. But musically, it was the tone that Coltrane had that just sort of reached inside me. I've said before that I can listen to John Coltrane and actually have tears running down my face. And it's hard to define what those tears are. I'm certainly not sad, but tears just run down my face from uh, listening to him. After I did a little reading on Coltrane, what also impressed me was Coltrane was a musician who had problems with both heroin and alcohol. And yet he was able to clean himself up and stand up. And I just thought that was a wonderful picture of human strength. And he stood out as an example to loads of other musicians, which I also admired. Wynton Marcellus has an expression about the blues. He says, the blues is about slipping on the inevitable banana peels of life. But you're not supposed to stay there. You're supposed to stand up. And that's what Coltrane did. Mm. If you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guest is WGBH's own Eric Jackson, known as the Dean of Boston Jazz Radio. This year, he celebrates 40 years as a jazz host. Now, your evolution to becoming the Dean of Boston Jazz Radio started with pieces like John Coltrane. But over the years, you've introduced us to some other musicians that have become favorites. And I wanted to play a couple for the listeners who may not know this. Here's a clip from Dave Brubeck's <laughs> Take Five. <laughs> Why do you think this one's a favorite? <laughs> well, I think it's the uh, the rhythm, the, the tone uh, of uh, uh, Paul Desmond's alto saxophone, uh, Blue Black's piano playing. I can tell you an interesting story. Um, when I was about nine or ten, my oldest brother had a job uh, changing the music in the jukeboxes. And so he used to bring home tons of CDs. And I would go through the pile and see a name or something that I recognize, and I'd put them on and I'd listen to them. So I listened to a wide variety of music that way. But I remember looking through the pile and finding this red record. And that sort of stood out. You know, I was only nine or 10. Remember, kids used to have colored records. Uh, so maybe that's why it caught my attention. But I put it on and said, wow, that's really nice. I like that. And the other side was Blue Rondo a la Turk. And that's what caught my attention and made me listen to the to the record. So I became a fan of that shortly after it was released. So since you yourself are a jazz fan, do the pieces that are the favorites of your audience often line up or always line up with what are your favorites? Well, in one sense, I don't really see my role as playing my favorites. Okay. My role is to introduce people to new music and new artists. And if I want to listen to my favorites, I've got my living room. 
Uh, well, my den, actually. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the role of me on the radio is to let people hear different things, different sides of the music. I've had this concept about doing a jazz show that if you play one style of jazz, the people who like that style of jazz will listen to you. If you're a bebop fan, then people who are bebop fans will listen. If you play big bands, people who are big band fans will listen to you. But I've tried to play music from all of those styles, and the goal is to try and make it sound cohesive, make it flow, so that people who normally would say, oh, I don't like big bands, or oh, I don't like bebop, or something like that, will listen and say, hey, I didn't like think I would like that kind of stuff, but wow, you know, that's okay. So that's the challenge to me, is to be able to put the show together in a way that people can feel a flow from one thing to another, and perhaps begin to enjoy something or some kind of sound that they didn't think they would enjoy before. Have you seen your audience evolve over the last 40 years? Well, I've certainly seen them grow grayer. <laughs> well, that's some of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about evolve, but there certainly are uh, a lot of different folks who listen. There are students who listen. I'm not sure if this is true anymore, but you used to be told at Berkeley that a number of the professors there would tell their students, this is what you should listen to. And they would tell them to listen to my show. So certainly young folks listened to my show, you know, when they were teens. Now, of course, a lot of teens are not listening to the radio, so I'm not sure how much of that's still going on. Well, terrestrial radio, but, you know, you're digital, too, now these right, days, and they right. find different kinds of right. music on the Internet right. and come right. back to it to, to learn more. One of my students in uh, my class at Northeastern just mentioned her parents wanted to see her schedule from her classes at Northeastern, and they saw my class, and they found out who the professor was, and she said they were all extremely excited to know that Eric in the evening was <laughs> her teacher. So, and, and I've had a number of students through the years who've said, oh, yeah, that's what my parents used to play in the house when I was there. So, yeah, I, I did listen to the show. So there, there certainly are people, uh, young people, who did listen as they were growing up, too. Let's take a listen, as you might say, okay. uh, to uh, some of the new artists that you've identified in the last few years that you think are making some inroads. Here's a clip of pianist Christian Sands performing L-O-V-E on WBGO's Morning Jazz with Gary Walker. I love piano, so I'm going to always love this. (laughs) I just love it. (laughs) You know, know, we've had him on. First, we did a live broadcast with him from Scholars, and then three, four weeks ago, we did a live webcast of of Christian from the Boston Public Library. From the Satellite Studio, yes, that's right. right. And people can still find that if they'd like to hear it. But um, why do you say he's one of the innovators? Well, you know, I, I think... Innovation is one thing, but I think it's also uh, connected with the tradition, uh, and I think that's why I like it. He's he's not totally anchored in the tradition, 
he has some other things that sound very different than that. And he's told me that his next recording will be the same way. He is, I guess, in his mid-20s, and he grew up listening to what people in their mid-20s listen to. And you can hear that in some of his music. It was not, if not in that tune, and certainly on some of the other tunes on his recording. You could hear... All those influences. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a clip of singer Jasmia Horn, yeah, um, whom her. I don't know at all, her. performing Moaning at the 2018 Grammy Awards. Mm -hmm. In the morning, find me moaning Cause of all the trouble I see Life's a losing gamble to me Cares and woes have got me moaning I'm so tired of paying these dues. Everybody knows I'm moaning. Well, wow. Yeah, yeah, she's <laughs> she's incredible. She was at the Beantown Jazz Festival. Well, yes, right here, uh, which we should mention happens yeah. every year right here right. in Boston. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh, and she was just wonderful there. I should also mention, too, that on the uh, CD, she starts off that song, it's a medley. She starts off by singing Lift Every Voice and Sing, wow. and then segs into moaning there. But again, she knows the tradition. At time, you can hear uh, influences from Betty Carter in her singing, but then she just has her own way of uh, singing and expressing that goes beyond Betty Carter. I, I just love her. I love her. So since there are these new folks and new voices out there who are, as you say, incorporating tradition, but yet going off in their own directions, what do you see as the future of jazz as other kinds of folk who have appreciated, let's say, rap or R&B circle back around to discover this? You know, there's always people who are always saying jazz is dead. <laughs> and I've never bought that theory that jazz is dead. I think that in many cases it suffers from a lack of exposure. You know, you can be overexposed, but this is a case of a lack of exposure. I think that if a lot more people heard jazz, they would find that there's some part of that broad spectrum of music that they like and they would relate to. Case in point is when I teach my class. Those are... At Northeastern. Right, mm -hmm. right. Those are students who, a lot of cases, have no knowledge of jazz at all, or very little, but by the same token, many of them say, wow, I really like that. Uh, can you recommend some other things for me to listen to? So I think that's part of the problem is that they, they need to be exposed. I think the music will continue to evolve. I think it will continue to take on influences. It has been a music that's taken on influences just about through its entire history. And I think that's going to uh, continue. And I think there are people who are going to find that part of that spectrum that they like and they're going to listen to. You know, it, it's very different than so-called popular music in that Louis Armstrong records still sell today. Of New Orleans, if people right, don't know. Right. Yes. It's not like, you know, they say, oh, that's from the 20s. You know, like that's a bad thing. For jazz fans, that's good music to those people who like that part of the spectrum. So I think that it will continue to grow and people will find uh, what appeals to them in that spectrum. 
People may not know that lots of folks have tapped your expertise over these 40 years. You've been to England to speak about jazz. You've helped shape the Jazz Museum exhibits. You lead the class at Northeastern, as we've said. And you know a lot of jazz artists. I mean, Eric, you're pretty well known. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, I was fortunate in that Scullers and the Regatta Bar at one time brought in so many different artists. And I was asked to interview so many of them. In fact, there was a time when if you hadn't booked an interview on my show by about Labor Day, you probably weren't going to get on that year because there were so many artists being booked to be interviewed. At first, it used to be really almost frightening to me because, you know, I'd look up and say, wow, I'm about to talk to Dizzy Gillespie. Wow. You know, uh, (laughs) and I almost had to psych myself up. I had to say myself... You've got to be calm. You've got to ask the questions. You can't be a fan right now. You have to be an interviewer. But it's just, that's part of what I love about the job and what keeps it exciting to me is to be able to meet those uh, musicians and talk to them about their music. Still find that exciting. And how do you see Eric's future with jazz, wherever it may be? (laughs) Uh, You know, I plan on staying around for... uh, Next 40 years? Well, no. No, no I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to say that. No, I'm not planning on staying around for 40 years. But I'm fortunate. I went through a period of bad health, but my health is fine now. So uh, I'm just uh, thinking about staying on the air and continuing to uh, play this music because it's still the music I love and I still find it exciting. And just as when I started, I started in radio because I, I've always said I'm not the kind of person that would want to go on vacation by themselves. Because if I see a beautiful lake, I want to have somebody to grab and say, wow, do you see that lake? And I think that's the same way I am with music. That's what got me started on the radio. So I wanted to be able to say, wow, I just heard this beautiful song. Here, you've got to hear this radio. That's the perfect vehicle for doing that. Well, I know that you will continue to be an ambassador for this music that uh, you very much care about and want others to care about as well. I assume that people understand that you're the only dean of Boston <laughs> Jazz Radio. So, and they should know that our conversation is part of really a week-long celebration of your 40 years on the air. It's which incredible. Is qu- it's really something yeah, to see yeah. how many people are stepping forward yeah. to give you honor and tribute as you, as you well deserve. It's certainly an honor. I, you know, like I said, I couldn't even imagine being here 40 years. In fact, my time in radio has been a time where things that just happened that are like, me? You, you, you want me to do this? You know, so uh, this, the celebration all follows, falls under that same sort of category. Me? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations, Eric. Thank you. Thank and, you very and much. And we'll be listening. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Eric Jackson is known as the Dean of Boston Jazz Radio. He is celebrating 40 years on the air as a jazz host here at WGBH Radio. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook. 
facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.